This is How the Art World Works, and I'm your host, Megan Flanders. Hi, I'm Karen Atkinson. This episode contains strong language that might not be cool for sensitive audiences. You can catch up on any episodes you may have missed at our website, artworldpodcast.com. We're on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, but you already knew that. If you like what we do, please help us get the word out by reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this podcast however you can. Thank you. Today, we're talking with our friend and colleague, Edgar Arsenault. Take it away. How does the art world work? <laughs> can we build up towards that? Yeah, sure can. can we lead up towards that? Yeah, yeah that might no. be better. If we can. <laughs> I mean, where, where, just where, do you, where do you start? Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce yourself? My uh, name is Edgar Arsenault. Yeah, we're currently in my studio, which is in East Pasadena. And, you know, we actually wound up moving into this, uh, into the house because my, my, my studio is in the is in the garage slash guest house of the... Um, yeah, this is a nice-ass garage. Let's not get it twisted, son. <laughs> it's taken a while for me to move. I would rent this garage. Shit. It's taken me a while to get it to be something that I wanted. But when we first moved in here, we were renters. Around the time that we were about to get married, you know, it was raining and the roof was leaking in the bathroom. And then the owner, the homeowner was like, hey, yeah, that's the thing. You know, we're about to sell the house. So if you want to buy it... Um, it can be yours. This roof is your problem now. This roof is your problem. But the thing is, is that, you know, I didn't have any money. I didn't have no idea about even how to buy a house or how to. So we were sort of pushed into the scenario to do it. But it was one of those instances where you realize that people who own things, people who have stuff, almost never do it by themselves. That realization came just after graduating from CalArts because. I was living at CalArts, and we were looking for a place to live, and we found this listed somewhere, and we moved in. So the guy who used to live in this garage, and there's an apartment upstairs, and he used this space down here for storage, was the owner's cousin. And it wasn't until he moved out that we learned that the, he was using this garage as a grow house. Yeah! Which like made me so, made me so <laughs> upset, because I realized, I was like, man, this place could have got raided. <laughs> and you were in the front house. Also, we were in it the doesn't front smell house. like weed at all. It does no, no, not smell yeah, like a grow been, house. It doesn't smell like a grow house. I don't think that he was very good at it. because um, I don't <laughs> I think there was a lot of investment in electric electricity and fans and lights. I didn't really see much product going out, so I'm assuming that he wasn't very good. Anyway, he wound up getting evicted um, Can't for, other reasons, for other reasons. For other reasons. So yeah, so we're in an, an ex grow house. Which actually the house is a little I'm I'm digressing a little bit, but the house is pretty old. It was built in 1928, so there actually used to be a gas station in front of this of this door. They used to shear sheep in here. So when we were renovating the building, you know, I found a trap door just behind us that essentially, if, if I had jumped on it hard enough, I would have fell to my death from the first from the second floor to the first floor. What um, kind of gas station also shears sheep? Oh yeah, I'm kind of jumping around in history. So <laughs> at first they were shearing sheep, and then later it became an auto mechanics garage. Got so it, part it. of the stuff was it was like all this pneumatic piping and stuff that was running through here, which now in retrospect I'm now like I'm so sexy. stupid. Yeah. I should have kept them. I should have kept all that stuff, um, but we wound up ripping it all out. So anyway, so the studio now is slowly, you know, we've added to it, and you know, I've slowly kind of taken over the whole backyard and trying to strike some kind of a balance between. My home life, you know, my, mm-hmm. my wife and child in the in the front, and then this space in the back. And I mean, maybe you can you could think of that as some kind of metaphor of how to how to navigate the I don't know kind of the irregular terrain of being an arts person who I guess you can even maybe say like an arts professional if you have some sort of metric for that. But just to be able to practice and not totally scorch the earth of your relationships, your interpersonal relationships, the people mm-hmm. who aren't necessarily part of the of the social apparatus that is kind of the the blood and tissue of how the the art world works you know so my my wife doesn't really go to a lot of openings and i've <laughs> i've learned that it makes for a happier relationship um, when she doesn't or we'll go to ones with people that we know but other than yeah. that 
You know, because she, you know, because even at Cal Arts, when she was there, she was like, man, those those girls up there are a bunch of assholes because like none of them wanted to talk to her. They would be, they would treat her bad because she wasn't part of the art. Well, you know, my wife is a very accomplished educator. You know, Does she have a name? Sasha Robinette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, I have so many questions, my, man. My wife. Yeah, Sasha. So, you know, she's a, she's a very accomplished, you know, she founded her own charter school. You know, it's like one of the top yeah. 10 percentiles in the state. So, I mean, she's got this amazing intelligence, but she learned pretty quickly. It was like most of that didn't matter. It's still clicky. It's well, it's it's clicky, but also because the 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 drinking and the hanging out in rooms and chatting is a thinly veiled series of not just social interactions, but potentially business business interaction. interaction yeah, and the intermingling of the two can be confusing for some people. It could be a lot of fun for others. Like they just go and they just love the ambiance. They love all the chatting and the fabulous people and the and the exhibitions of lifestyles. For some of my friends, they're just like, "Oh, this is awesome," you know. And they look at the art and they think it's great. But you know, if you're in the industry, it's not as much fun. Like I, I went to Sundance a couple of years ago. I stood in line. I had no tickets. I stood in line. I met people from all over the world that just love movies. But people in the industry, it's like, oh, this sucks. Like, I hate it. I loved it. It was Everything about it was fantastic. You, you weren't know? in the front. I was not in the, the front. I was in the back. So I can, I can, I, I understand that, that, that proximity is, is, is a part of it. Though, you know, as an, as an aspiring playwright and filmmaker, I mean, I would like to be on the other side of that equation. But just as a, as a point of comparison, you know, just to, to talk about to talk about that so why cal arts why cal arts well i mean i was asked to apply i'll, I'll say that um first and, and so my 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 story with with cal arts is a little it lasts probably about it's longer than 20 years because when i was in high school i learned about this summer school program called the california state summer school of the arts and when i was in the 11th grade i applied I got in and I lived on campus at CalArts for a month, <laughs> which was dangerous. You know, <laughs> well, as as a kind of a naive kid who didn't really know any practicing artists at all when I was in high school, besides my my arts my um, my high school art teachers and crafts teachers, I have no sense of what being in art school was, other than like fame, like watching the TV show Fame, you know. So. When I got to CESA at CalArts, it was like that, you know, dancers and They're people just playing guitars, people yeah. dancing in the hallways, you know, and you got, you know, teachers walking around and, you know, they, they seem to like glow this air of, <laughs> of creativity and accomplishment and, you know, you got artists and people playing guitars in the hallways, it's just like the acoustics are going, people doing Tai Chi and, you know, we got to draw figures and they weren't naked, you know, they were in bikinis, but, you know, like it was like, oh man. It was so much better. It was Sign the best experience. It was the best experience ever. The same anxieties that I felt as a high schooler were the same thing, same anxieties that I felt as a college student there. But I didn't know I was going to wind up there um, at college. I wound up going to community college at yeah. you know, San Antonio Junior College, which was great. <laughs> they have it. Yeah, all right. You know, community college is awesome. And I had, they, you know, Mount Sac has a great art program. Yes, they do. And um, I wound up at Art Center first in the night program because one of my classmates had told me, hey, you know, there's a portfolio submission for Art Center at night. You should apply. So I put together my portfolio that day. We drove down there together. I submitted my portfolio, and so did he. I got in. He didn't. Awkward. Yeah, it was a little bit awkward. But, you know, it was great because then I was surrounded by all these amazing people whom were also there at night, but I got to see what the full-time students were doing. I applied again. I didn't get accepted, and then they, they asked me to apply for the full-time program, which I did. That's, you know, about a year into that experience, they invited Charles Gaines to come and be a guest teacher at Art Center. That's when I had learned about the graduate program, as he had suggested that I apply at the end of it. And Charles had taught a um, semiotics course, which was really my first time into seeing the, the direct connection between philosophy, conceptualization, and image making. And also like the first, pretty much the first, one of the first black teachers I ever had. I could most certainly say the first teacher that I had that shared my interest in language and in philosophy and, and criticality that was also interested in systems. And that was, so, you know, we really, we hit it off then. And, you know, three years later, I was, I was at, at CalArts. So, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to describe is a, um, 
is a kind of meandering way of making it through different kinds of thresholds. And, you know, that meandering is partially ignorant because I knew getting into Art Center was difficult. I didn't know how difficult it was to get into CalArts. But, you know, like I'm, I'm one of these people whom, you know, relies on coincidence and chance and recognizing opportunity and then trying to be fully present. Yes, anyway, so that's how I got to CalArts. I mean, it's a little, cool. a little long way. Cool. Did you take the GIST class with Karen? No, no, I don't even know. I, I didn't take I that. No. See, my, my experience at CalArts was somewhat unique because when I was at Art Center, I was I felt like this real itch to to teach because I got an, I got the Art Center in '94, two years after the L.A. uprising, the L.A. Mm-hmm. riots had happened in '92, and we we had moved out of L.A. in '84, so it was like eight years later. You left at the Olympics and came back to fire. Not only the Olympics, but also <laughs> when Purple Rain was in theaters, Ooh. and. Um, that was a good idea. Yeah, I like to, I like to, to mention it was the first time I saw like a sex scene in a movie theater and my parents weren't telling me to cover my eyes because they weren't there with me. Um, you know, seeing L.A. go up in flames, you know, I was like, what can I do as an artist to participate in the rebuilding of the city? And at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, I'm learning all this great stuff at Art Center. Maybe I can share this somehow. But the school wasn't willing to give us opportunities to teach because they wanted us to just be on campus. So I was fortunate enough to meet an artist named George Evans who had started this program called the Art on Saturday program down in South Central off of Hobart's and off of Hobart and Adams, adjacent to Western. And is it still a program? Is it still a thing? No, 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 it's not. But it, it lasted for at least 10 years. So I went down there one Saturday and wound up staying there for three years, you know, just like kind of like Robin Hooding my education from Art Center. I was just bringing it down there and like teaching everything mm-hmm. I was learning for free. But it was at that time that I was down at the fire station that I met artists like John Outerbridge and Eugenia Butler and Cecil Ferguson, curator, and this whole other art scene that was not part of the education I was getting at Art Center. So I found myself sort of moving between these, these two realms, again, sort of reinforcing in my imagination, which was... What contribution am I going to make that's not going to just be from one discourse or this other one, but like, what am I going to be able to add to that? So at the time when I was visiting John Outerbridge's studio, you know, I met this artist, Rick Lowe, who was Mm. working on a project in L.A., and that's how I got involved with Watts House Project, so this artist-driven neighborhood redevelopment project. Um, Is that how you got the cool sign in the yard? That's that's where the cool (laughs) sign in the yard came from. You know, when I was involved with Rick as part of this show at MoCA, I had shot some photographs of 107th Street and I had made this photo collage. And that was in the catalog and a collector from Germany had seen it and reached out to me and we got together. Through the conversation, he invited me to come to to Europe to do something. And again, that's you know, how the like, art world works. That's it, it, <laughs> that's how we all believe it's going to happen. We're just going to click three times. Well, some magical patron is going to fall out of the sky and be like, "Here's a pile of money. Go to Europe." Yeah, there was no pile of money. Most certainly, <laughs> he didn't pay for my flight either. Um, but he did give me a space. And what it was is that when I um, went to Cal Arts, I said, "You know, Tom, you know, I would like to be able to do an exchange." with this school that this collector was a professor of. He said, you know, come to my Fakushula, to the Fakushula Aachen, you know, you could be a resident. So they gave me a space and they gave me a dorm to live in. And I stayed there for a month. And I could pretty much trace my entire European art career to that moment of being there. But if you go back just a couple of steps in the story, I never would have imagined that me volunteering at an art center in Mm -hmm. South Central would have led to a German collector inviting me to fly to Europe. So my story of how the art world works is not necessarily just about the industry, Mm -hmm. but more about the way in which your your ideas, your your morals, your ethics, the choices that you make both in your work and the kind of conversations that you want to have can send you along trajectories that you couldn't have imagined was was possible. Right. My time at CalArts was different. So even if Karen was teaching just at the time, I was only there for um, a year and a semester, and then one full semester I was gone. What happened when I got back from that, from that residence, 
was that I had found that a lot of the relationships um, amongst my class and then the class that came after us had, um, this is in the second year, had um, crystallized into these groups that were, um, I don't know, not so friendly to each other. <laughs> and I, and, and it, it was a, um, in, in my mind, it had centered around who had access to certain faculty and who didn't. Some people were able to study with teachers. So like the painters had their painting faculty right. and then the female artists, you know, who were the feminists who had, you know, had their faculty. And then people were, you know, there's more, you're going to get access to shows and opportunities and publications and things. And it was surprising to me when I got back because I was like, what's happening? There was, you know, when you're in a, in a room with people and they're talking and you can, it's clear that there's certain things that they're just not saying in front of you. Mm -hmm. Like those were the things that were starting to happen. Like half the conversation had happened at a thing you weren't at. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm one of these people who prefers to float in between groups. I found myself having really just two relationships in the program after that, which was one was with Rodney McMillan and the other mm -hmm. one was Olga Comanduras, who are still friends of mine. And Olga's the shit. I love yeah, Olga. Yeah, Olga's great. And, you know, and Rodney is too. But we had a conversation that allowed all of us to kind of to navigate those circumstances. Now, I'm not blaming my, my classmates for, for clustering, but I do recognize that it, it's the way in which certain kinds of systems have tendencies to them that produce certain results that can operate independent of your intentions. Because I know a lot of these people now outside of school. They're not the people that I remember. Their actions then aren't reflective of my relationships with them now. Sure, everybody grows up a little bit. Well, it's not just <laughs> growing up, but I think but part of it has to do is that the closeness and the proximity and sharing the same studios and knowing each other's secrets and the space between personal and artistic criticality can become so overlapped and entangled it can be hard to tell if somebody's critiquing your work or if they're talking about you right yeah and every group at cal arts in the graduate program is different every single year yeah so it's fascinating one year they all hate each other another year they're all into each other or they're split completely so every single year is different it's fascinating yeah, it it is and you know and when i talk to students and try to inspire them to be cautious about alienating your mm -hmm. classmates is because those associations and those are part of the networks that will either direct resources towards you those are the people whom will actually come to your studio and talk to you about your work those Ideally, are the people that show up to your truth. openings when they don't have to anymore they show up to your openings <laughs> they're the ones who tell you about things that are coming up things or to suggest avoid. you for projects that they're talking about with somebody else that that's right kind of a broader sense you know what i've tried to do over the years which is really more like the tortoise approach as opposed to the hare which is to align myself with people whom I felt had similar aspirations and goals. Folks who I felt like they were trying to build something that wasn't just for themselves, but that they were trying to add something to the discourse within the field. And I mean, in those relationships, some people come in and out of phase around that. But I felt like it was the best way to guarantee you would have a longer, more meaningful career. If you were surrounding yourself by people whom, whom in which you were trying to build the same world, right, that you want to live in, as opposed to, you know, associating yourself with people who are hot right now or you feel like have something that you want. Out of your cohort, who got signed to a major gallery? Yeah, Rodney, Olga. They're all in the same. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know if Olga shows at, at Suzanne's anymore. It's what Rodney does. At one point, you were all three um, there. Yeah, we were all there. You know, Charles Gaines still shows with Suzanne. Mm -hmm. You know, Andrea Bowers is still... A friend and ally. So I mean, I don't, I don't know if that sounds too heady of a kind no. of philosophy, but no, it, it actually is think one that works for me. I think it's really smart because I think there's choice, and also the hair approach and doing it right, as opposed to just going the easiest way you can or trying to or be a flash in the pan. Or there's all kinds of people who big cheeses for a minute, and I think the steady race is usually the thing that works out. I mean, it's a hard thing to tell young artists. Yeah. Um, that you're 
it sounds like you generated a community of like-minded people, which became like your tribe and your family. Mm-hmm. That's really crucial if you're an artist, because if not, it's tough without a support structure at all. Yeah. When I was when I was first starting out and trying to make my way into the in the art scene in New York and forming relationships there, I remember it sort of dawning on me that the system is really set up to prevent you from self-validating. So like the social aspect of it is really a, um, a series of filters that will allow you proximity to, you know, to resources, opportunities, and people. And that the, the social part of it is a way of allowing people in or, or out. And, but it's also a way to the systems of validation to be part of something which is external from yourself or that that recognition is there outside of you because you know you can be a nobody one instance you know people will shun you or laugh at you or even worse like not even recognize you at all ignoring ignore you or you know the next day you can be hot and you know and then you get embraced and but then that can then swing in the other direction as well the way of kind of fortifying yourself against that kind of arbitrary fluctuation fluctuations mm-hmm. yeah then you have to figure out how to 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 create a foundation which is based in something else i also recognize it in that philosophy that it also has then a direct effect upon the kinds of subjects that you decide to engage with inside of your artwork too i did a show that was actually in new york that was called building loving and distrustful relationships to some degree even though i was looking at my own relationships personally it was a way of thinking about like how how the art world works too do you make like traditionally sellable stuff yes (laughs) (laughs) i do but you haven't always done that yeah you go back and forth right i've always done it i mean but there's 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 definitely things that I make that can't be sold. Actually, most artists have that. The things that they can sell, things that they can't sell. So there's all sorts of intangible stuff that we produce. You know, there's mm-hmm. conversations, there's dialogues, you know, there's all sorts of exchanges that happen. Okay, but you're Some not them, like on stage, I have a whole show of just feelings I put in plexiglass. They're in a box. You cannot buy the feeling. Well, I don't, I don't. <laughs> It's new stage, Larry Bell. Yeah, that's, that's good. Trademark. That's good. That's good. That sounds like a good piece. <laughs> I'm, but what I'm, what I'm, what I've learned also because I, I used to be a nonprofit. I founded a nonprofit as well. So you learn pretty quickly that support comes in all like a broad range. So it's not just money is not one way. Sometimes it's access to relationships that other people are willing to make an introduction for you, or you know, it could be money. You know, it could be a loan. It could be time, just people coming, putting in the man hours to paint the space. Yeah. All the goodness. And, you know, mentorship is um, what's kind of like, it's the core principle of an art education is mentorship. So it's the direct exchange between the student and the teacher. It's the direct exchange between the students and each other. I do have things that I sell, but I would say if I were to quantify everything that I do, that it would be like green and yellow, like all the colors of the rainbow. Like, but there would be green and yellow would be the two things that are sold. And then there's like the rest of the spectrum, the rest of the spectrum is non-sellable stuff. Got it. And so that, that's sort of, that's, that's my dilemma because I don't want everything that I do to be sellable, to be transactional because it's, it's a different kind of relationship when it's just transaction based. Some things you want, I'm actually working on this theory and I, I'm, I'm putting it out there just because I'm curious to see how it comes back to me. But when you think about like why people go into a creative field and then once they go into a creative field, like what is it? Do they do sculpture? Are they doing painting? Are they drawing? Are they doing performance? So I had this, this working theory that people find themselves drawn to certain, certain forms because they prefer one kind of transaction over another. I need an example. The painter, I mean, I'm using some, some very gross generalizations here, but that basically it's a transactional theory, which is that the painter prefers the exchange between the object and the audience to be clear and distinct. So you, you make the thing, you give it to the person, they take it. The person who goes into performance may prefer a much more diffused relationship. 
between their object and the world. They may want a number of different kinds of exchanges. They may want the conversations. I mean, because the conversations affect the piece if you're doing theater, for example. Like, it's, it's collective. You rely upon, you know, all these other people to be involved. I don't know if the theory holds a lot of weight because I'm still kind of working through it, but... It's finding roots. It's okay. It's... It is... For example, like, art fairs are a, a very heightened kind of marketplace. So it, it, it privileges casual experiences with art that are primarily indexical. So, you know, you look at it, you know, is it a painting, is it a drawing, a sculpture? The dealer talks about it. You know, it's Larry Bell mixed with uh, Gursky, mixed with, you know, Coons. And then people are like, oh, uh, you know, I get it. Because there's 4,000 booths and mm -hmm. people only are going to afford themselves a certain amount of time because they want to see it all. So the art fair privileges a certain kinds of transaction. And you can see the way in which that transaction has affected artists themselves mm -hmm. because they find themselves making more things for the fairs. So if you're a person who makes distinct things, then that transaction within the fair will privilege a certain kind of production, right? And it may be one in which you find favorable. Like, yeah, I just need a place to sell my work. Mm -hmm. I personally don't like fairs. I try not to go to them. I mean, it's great to make some money every once in a while, but it's never like I want to make stuff to go to the fairs because it's not the kind of, it's not the core relationship that I want to have between my production and, and people. Right. So I think that my I think that my practice reflects that. Mm -hmm. And I, I imagine that if I were to go and sit down with probably any artist, that somewhere in there there would be some evidence of this transactional theory that I that I have. That's probably fairly close, but I would throw in another aspect which has to do with money and who has it and who gets it and who doesn't and who makes a living off of the artist. I know artists who don't engage in that because they don't want the 1% to make a living off of their own practice or they don't want to engage in that process of not making, like, sure, you make some money, but you're not the one that actually ends up making the money. I think that that's one way because a lot of people, they're not interested in making that kind of work because they're not interested in supporting that structure. And other people aren't interested in making that work because that's not where the most interesting dialogue is. That's not where the most interesting discussions are. Or, you know, so I think that your theory is pretty close, but I think there's some other things circling around that uh, have an impact on those choices. So this is an extension of this, this research I've been doing for I don't know how many years now, maybe seven years, called New Financial Architectures for Creative Communities, mm -hmm. which is one of the things I was working on when I, when I went to CalArts to teach the last time I was there, I think in 2013 or 14. Basically, the idea of, of New Financial Architectures is to understand the relationship between where our support comes from and the effects that it has on the content of our work. Which is quite huge. It's, it's the kind of realization... I mean, I came to certain realizations, A, because I was running my own organization, right. which was at one point an art project, but then when we incorporated the families who were involved with Watts House Project, which was an artist-driven neighborhood redevelopment mm -hmm. project down in Watts on 107th Street, when we incorporated into a nonprofit and formed a board and the IRS got involved, everything changed. What I couldn't foresee was that the families who used to steer the project would slowly transition from collaborators into clients when we formalized. So there was something that happened within us adopting this tool that changed our behavior, which we couldn't foresee. And then going to art fairs, and you know, at least I remember the first time I went to Miami and I was super excited that I had worked there. Yeah. And then leaving the fair, I remember being in the airport and just feeling completely demoralized. I mean, you know, I had fun at the parties, you know, I got to meet a lot of people, but at the same time, felt like I was standing outside of it. And I don't, I don't know whom doesn't to some degree feel that way. So I went home and I just started thinking about this connection between support and content and recognized that somewhere in the middle between those two things was our own temperament and values. How do we maintain our joy which is the core of our energy, right? So when we incorporate 
an idea and when it takes on a shape or a form, if it's a mission or a purpose or a project, one of the, the initial questions is, well, how am I going to pay for this? Or what, how is it going to be supported? And supported is mean not only how am I going to organize myself to do it, but then also where is the support going to come from for me to do well, Oftentimes what happens is that you find yourself being in service of finding the support as opposed to the support being in service of you. And, you know, it gave me an indication of a much larger trend within the American economy, which is that it wants to push you outside of the creative space and turn you into a manager or a fundraiser. And then I started to look a little bit bigger and discovered that this was something that wasn't affecting just artists, but that anybody who wanted to bring something into the world in which they needed to rely on some form of subsidy, be it if you're working in the food industry or the medical field or... Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not coming from a ton of money, if you don't have things in your pocket, like you have to think about how what you do is going to where is the where the money is coming from, where the support is coming from. Is it going to elevate and deepen and enrich your relationship to it? Or is it going to force you to become a manager? And in most instances, at least to the people that I know that operate at a certain scale, they find themselves increasingly <laughs> becoming a manager. So it's that support structure and the nonprofit structure is antiquated in this country. And so I started a nonprofit, and the next time I took on something really huge, I decided not to do a nonprofit very specifically. I think that there's a lot of those things that tend to direct the way you operate. Getting your shit together is a dynamic and important resource for contemporary artists of all kinds. Check out the book, opportunities, articles, advice, calls for entry, software, and more at gystink.com. And use code EDGAR for free shipping. Again, that's G-Y-S-T-I-N-K, promo code EDGAR. Every sale directly benefits this podcast. If that sounds like something you can get behind, again, check out gistinc.com, promo code EDGAR. Thank you for supporting small business and shopping local. Okay, back to the show. Like, has a gallery ever stolen your work or kept it? Yes. Let's yes, tell that story, because that... that happens more often than not. Well, you know, when I was when I was at CalArts, I mean, they would, you know, I heard the nightmares. You know, I think Charles told me that he's had at least like $100,000 worth of art stolen. Like it was in an exhibition and it just never came out? Well, you know, it goes into a a dealer's storage. Mm -hmm. Either they may damage it or, you know, they sell it and they keep the money. You know, when I, you know, one of my my first experiences um, in showing at a gallery in New York, which was at the project in Harlem, which was the first commercial gallery that opened in Harlem Mm -hmm. that was, you know, run by a black art dealer as a young guy by the name of Christian Hay. He had aspirations. I mean, he had really huge aspirations for it. And it was, it was one of my like first New York Mm -hmm. story experiences. The gallery was in an old automotive shop. When I went there to install my show, I was there for a week. We slept upstairs on like mattresses on the floor and there there was no windows in the building. I mean, you know, like rats running around, there's no plumbing. There was plastic over the windows, and you basically just pulled a blanket over your head mm-hmm. and you went to sleep. There was a bathroom in the basement. There was no plumbing. So, I mean, you, cold water came out. It was freezing, and the, it would drain into a bucket that you would go outside and, like, dump <laughs> in the street. So, like, neither one of us had showered for, like, a week. So, I, Peter Rostovsky, who was one of the artists that showed with him, let me come and take a shower in his apartment. That's but a it, bro. Yeah, but it was great. You know, like great artists were in this uh, this first show. Like Daniel Martinez was in it and Marina Abramovich and Paul Pfeiffer and Elm Green and Droxette. So like there were like all these really great artists that were in the show. It felt like you were really part of something. Like it was like, yeah, this is happening. You know, this is it's finally time. I remember when I then had my solo show that Christian said something to me along the lines of like, I was trying to put something in the show that he didn't totally agree with. And he was like, I'm not going to allow you to get me a bad review. And I was Ooh. like, what? But I was young, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I didn't I didn't think that that was a really fucked up thing to yeah, say. Yeah, there's no weight behind that, no comprehension. Well, and also it was my show, yeah. you know, not his. And, you know, I like I really pushed myself and I made these like these super huge drawings, which I was really proud of at the time. But for reasons that I think... The gallery wound up closing at a certain point. Christian just basically disappeared. 
Mm-hmm. Everybody's work went into storage, and everybody was like, "Hey, has anybody heard from Christian? Where's our artwork at?" And I, I could say most certainly that most of it did not come back. Once he resurfaced, I mean, people probably know Christian mainly because he was sued by by an art dealer because he had sold him a um, a Julie Moretu painting that he didn't own or that didn't exist. And he wound up getting sued for, I don't know, like a million dollars or something. Not the most reputable dude in the business. And it really kind of scarred me in many ways because I was like, I don't like this, but maybe this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, what if this is really it? This is the thing. (laughs) Yeah, what if this is the thing? But, you know, I felt fortunate because, you know, he could sell my my works. I was making money. I was in New York. I was meeting all these amazing people. But I was also kind of like didn't trust him or anybody involved with the gallery. And then I also remember one other fucked up thing that they did. They dropped me from the gallery without telling me. So I just showed up to the gallery one day, especially because they moved, they opened a gallery here in L.A., that I saw when I went and visited, you know, I saw all these binders of all the artists, you know, they always have those showing yeah. like, mm-hmm. all their work and mine wasn't there. <laughs> I was like, you're like, are you guys I putting in new sick? sleeves? What's going on? Yeah, the I know, but you know, but stuff? I was, I was so, <laughs> that's such um, a disrespect. It is a disrespect. Like phone and, call is free, man. But it was from what I can tell, I mean, because I, I hadn't, I didn't talk to them about it or maybe I did eventually. I was like, Hey, what's going on? Am I still part of the gallery? And he's like, no. <laughs> cool, yeah great yeah i know but you know at the same time i was like why is it like this you know and and i could i could recognize that there were certain people whom were buying art from them that valued that way of being in the world and and i started thinking well what what makes up the personality of a person who wants to buy art from someone whom looks down upon the very class of people in which it was producing mm-hmm. their products, you know. Then I started to understand that this space of, of class transformation became very, I became very interested in this. Even when I was at Art Center, I was interested in it. You know, I had a, a friend, um, still a friend, uh, Vincent Johnson, who you may or may not know, who's an artist who was living in New York in the 80s. He's, I think, 10 years older than I am. So he was really hipping me early on about how the art world worked. And I remember one story that he told me which totally just freaked the shit out of me because I just mentally was not prepared right. for it. And he goes, you know what the art world is like? He goes, he goes, it's like the Borg. And I was <laughs> like, the Borg? And so for those of you who don't watch Star Trek, you know, the Borg is that white, the, the albino-faced um, hive mm-hmm. mind alien species that have a queen. And essentially what the Borg does is that they, they capture your ship, they assimilate all your technology, and then afterwards, they're like, you have been assimilated. You will be destroyed. And then, boom, boom, and then you would blow apart. So he was like, the art world is like that. He goes, essentially, they assimilate all the best parts of you. And then they jettison you out at the end. And I was like, that is absolutely horrible. So, you know, I was having these experiences, which I just thought was the way in which it worked. And I was, I was going to have to figure out how to survive within that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm piecing together my own plan. I'm like, okay. This guy's an asshole, but there must be some people out there that are not like that. Are there? Did absolutely, you find them? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, like <laughs> I, I show with the gallery I've been with the longest is, is Suzanne Vilmetter. I mean, I consider her to be a friend. I mean, and actually sort of part of my family now. You is know, your binder together, up there? <laughs> several. She, she I have got several that binders. Binder. I have Good. several binders. <laughs> You know, but we. I'm gonna go check. We, yeah, go and check. <laughs> Actually, if it's not there, it'll be. Uh, you call me. <laughs> Conversation to be had. But you know, like she was, she was the first person that I that I dealt with in this business, at least as a commercial dealer, that just felt like she was a person who had experiences in her life that led her to appreciate people and the labor that they bring to things, right? Because you know, like her, her personal experience is that. You know, met her her husband in the process, who are still to here. You know, they're still together, and he's really awesome, and he's a friend, and he helps me out on my projects too. But you know, when all of her friends are off having careers and going to college, like she was raising a family and doing it more or less, the two of them doing it more or less on their own without any real help. So you know, she really built herself up. Um, you know, learning about the business, working at another gallery, and then started out on her own. She's never told me anything like, you know, you're not going to give me a bad review. She's never told me what to make. And as a matter of fact, 
you know, I, I almost never show her what I'm producing for a show. Um, I give her some indications of it, but she never tells me do this or do that. She's able to sell the work. Sometimes she'll pay the work in advance. You know, she'll help me to make things. And that was a relationship that we slowly nurtured and with each other, you know, to sort of to build trust. And one advice that I give to, to young artists is that when she was starting out, she was still relatively new and so was I. So sometimes when you show with like really big galleries that are super established, then you kind of have to find your way through the pre-existing circuitry of how they operate their business. But in this instance, we were kind of figuring it out together cooperatively and sometimes collaboratively. She has in many ways become the template for the kind of relationship which I have to demand if I have you know, a relationship with other galleries or at least something close to it. I mean, Because you know it exists that. now. You know what good feels like. I know I know what good is, but you know, the business that we're in makes that the exception, not the rule, is the reality. And you know, my, my experience working with Christian and with the project and a few other galleries who have taken things or sold things or kept money, you know, that's not the only one. You know, there's people who accept that as the norm and they roll with it. But my you know, I was I was fortunate enough to meet Rick and be involved in this project in Watts and it didn't it enabled me to explore another aspect of production, which is, can you make really interesting, compelling work that can also do some good in the world and still be considered intellectually rigorous as well as aesthetically interesting and not just be about transactional relationships? And when I was working at Watts, you know, it was, the, it was the, one of the greatest classrooms that I could ever be in because you know you get to test things you get to explore things you get to make stuff that's not stuff you don't have to sell anything it allowed me to understand politics in the way in which i was introduced to at cal art right. but on the ground like dealing with people whom are politicians or dealing with people whom are poverty pimps or dealing with people whom are straight up destroyers like their right. whole thing is just to fuck shit up when you meet these people in real life you start to understand how they function, but then you also understand like what it is that your creative production is trying to battle against, trying to push up against what an artist can be, what a production can be, whom gets to be creative, trying to help people understand that they can be creative or unearth the creativity that they have in them and do it in a, in a way and in a place that can benefit both you as the producer and the neighborhood itself and leave some benefit behind. All those things changed how I imagine myself operating as, a, as an object producer with, within the art world. And I've tried to carve out a space for myself and ideally for others where we can do those things and not feel as though we're less serious or that, that you recognize that your work is important. That it's you can equally validate. as important as the saleable stuff. But th this is the thing. Cause, I mean, we're, we were recognizing that the art world is changing and that galleries are closing. The whole brick and mortar business is, you know, the internet has shifted all of that. And artists have been contending with, with the reality of being nomadic or being mobile for, at least in the U.S., for, for decades and decades. How do I make my work? How can I be an artist and still have a life, have a family? Can I pay my taxes? Can I have health insurance? Can I have retirement? How how do I push the boundaries? How do I get resources? We've been dealing with this stuff for a long mm -hmm. time. And, mm -hmm. you know, artists today, I think, uh, have to be trained and have to be in contact with models that allow for them to fully express themselves, but then also those who care about engaging with politics or care about being a citizen, a good citizen, can see that these two things are mutually exclusive. You know, you don't, you don't have to be an artist and something else. Like you, can, you can be if you want to be, but you don't have to be necessarily. I think the conditions that we exist in, that our economy has forced a, a reshaping of our definition of where the boundaries of being an artist begins and where it ends. The death of the pager and the fax machine corresponded with the deterioration of the space between our public lives and our work lives, right? Like these things are now so totally intertwined that how what we make, how we market and distribute are now the same platforms that we use to share our stories with our friends. By that same token of things being interwoven and anxious and work is a question mark that's happening all the time. When you get signed with a gallery, you've been burned before. Do you sign a physical contract now? Why or why not? Um, I have. I have in some instances and in other ones I have not. So the, the contract basically is there to determine 
um, liability, ownership, percentages of when there's a transaction. So a commission versus a sale, an addition, you know, how you deal with additions, how you deal with your archive, how long the work is consigned to the gallery for, basically being able to point at something objectively and say, hey, you know, I would like to do something different. We put it in writing that I can do that. If your work gets destroyed, like, well, how does the insurance cover that, right? Mm -hmm. So like all of the things, there's so, so the idea is that it's, there's protections that are built in for you and for them. Sometimes that's a contract, which is signed. Sometimes it's an agreement. I do encourage most artists, particularly if they're starting out, that they do have some contract and to make sure they have a lawyer read it before they sign it. Because there's always little things in there that you that you forget about or you don't think is like a thing. Like, for example, like I had an experience with a gallery in the past where an artwork was destroyed and the insurance was going to pay back the value of the work if it was sold. Then the gallery wants to treat that as a sale. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you didn't sell it. You can't take a percentage of the sale. Like, there's no sale. But that wasn't made explicit in the contract. Right. You would want to talk to somebody like me or another person who's got some experience and they'd be like, hey, you know, make sure that's in there, right? Now, some dealers may say, I don't want to have a contract. I want it to be all free and willy-nilly. Some people allow for trust to be the guide. And if that person is someone that you can trust wholeheartedly, I think that's great. But some sort of an agreement, some understanding through a conversation needs to be had. And a handshake sometimes is enough to be able to protect you if there's any, anything goes wrong. I think by law, um, and I could be wrong about that, but if there's some attorney listening, maybe they can respond in the, in the blog connected mm -hmm. to this thing. Dig it. Your turn, Karen. I actually would, so I think that we've uh, covered a lot of th things. One thing I'd like you to address a little bit is, so you've talked a lot about the different kinds of work that you make and the different places that you make that work. I know that now that you have a gallery that you, you're showing more in that space than you are doing other things right now. But you always have this playing field, it seems like, where you choose the thing that's important and then you figure out how to do that. And some of it's in the gallery and some of it's not in the gallery. It seems to me like your practice has always centered around what's important to you as an individual, as well as your community. You know, I have some artists that I talk to, they're making work specifically for a specific thing, right? Like they're trying to get somebody's attention or they're, it's like the art fair thing, or they're trying to make this work and it's, or I know dealers that that actually tell their artists what to make. And I get emails from people all the time. It's like, oh my God, my dealer's asking me to make more of these and I don't want to do that. And I said, you know, you signed up for a commercial gallery and you should really know what you're getting into. There aren't a lot of contracts with a lot of spaces might be a problem, but there's no reason you can't have a conversation and you can't actually write down those things and say, I have a really bad memory. Can I just write this stuff down? And can you just confirm it so that I really know what the deal is? But I'm kind of interested in how you see the future of what's happening in the art world with things like galleries are closing and artists are finding new models and new ways of working and there's a lot of people in the quote, quote, high art world that are really angry or really like they're saying artists shouldn't know anything. If they know too much, then we can't manipulate them. Or there's other people say that, well, artists can't handle running a business on their own. They have to have help. So I'm curious about how you think about those kind of scenarios that come up all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you can see anything in the future of how things are changing. So if right. all the galleries well, close, then well, all, boom, that's another... All of the, I mean, the galleries you know. won't close because then artists will open their own galleries. Which dun, they dun, have. Dun. <coughs> so, I There's mean, now 100 artist-run spaces in L.A., and in 1991, there were three. Which is awesome. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the I mean, we were talking, we're talking about larger trends that yeah. are happening, you know, the, the rise of the internet. I mean, as like the communication platform, but the other ways in which labor has been affected, I mean, we've seen like tower records close and, you know, we've seen um, institutions that we thought would never go away disappear, we've seen the radical transformation of, you know, music because of Apple and platforms like YouTube. But automation, algorithms, and AI has, drastically transformed production within the U.S. and labor markets in a way which has definitely trickled itself down to the art world. So in, in one way, it's because the people whom can buy art, who consider it to be something worth purchasing, 
at least on the highest levels, they're looking at it from an investment standpoint yeah. or from a tax, a tax uh, mm-hmm. shelter standpoint. And oftentimes, these are hedge fund managers or these are people who work within the financial industry, titans of industry who can spend millions of dollars a year on the high end, on blue chip and, and, and the smaller markets within the contemporary scene. Because they're looking at speculative investment as a, as a model mm-hmm. for, um, for their money to perform, which in, in real estate used to be the place where they put it. But now because of the internet, real estate is not worth what it was. Now, housing most certainly is still valuable. Right, Land but, is great. And then land is still great. You know, artists find themselves in this peculiar situation because we want to stay in the space where we can be creative, but kind of on all sides, commercial galleries are finding themselves increasingly battling against their marginal costs. Most, I, I won't talk about my gallery, but I, you know, some galleries, you know, their operating cost per month, you know, is upwards of a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Oh, yeah. So you have an employee person, you want to pay that person a decent salary per year. I mean, what is that? I don't know. 70, 60, 70, $80,000 a year. I mean, that's if they're like, a, a, some people will, will take that. And then what do you pay yourself? You start taking those costs, insurance, all the thing, the cost of doing art fairs and blah, blah, blah. Galleries are put into a situation, I mean, unless they have a, a big pool of money, where they're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul. What galleries They're often, floating the bills between shows that sell out they're often. They're floating the bills. So, you know, galleries will decide to take a risk on one artist if they know they have somebody whom can. Mm-hmm. Who they, they got a big they ticket got a, behind They got them. a big ticket behind yeah. them. Their investment in that particular artist becomes disproportionate to everyone else. But then everyone else is still relying upon that same system of the gallery, right? Galleries then will start to steal artists from each other. And then that's where consolidation starts happening because the smaller ones start to fall off and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. So then artists are like, well, fuck that. You know, like I have work I want to make and I just need a way of being able to market it. And, you know, then they market it themselves. They mm-hmm. sell it themselves or they start doing other things besides contemporary art. I mean, I'm not so concerned about the, the collapsing of the commercial sector because it will find some space to, to stabilize. But I do think that contemporary artists whom care about who their audience is, if their audience can own their work, if they care about class transformation, if they want to become the wealthy persons that are purchasing their work, if that's something that they want to do, then certain kinds of galleries are what they're going to aspire towards. For somebody like me who wants to be able to have a relationship between my work and somebody who makes $10,000 a year to, you know, someone who makes $10 million a year. Like I want to be able to run that gamut. And not only that, I want to be able to be a conduit between those communities. So it's forced me to have to learn about how to market and how to distribute and how to fundraise and how to talk and how to manage Mm -hmm. and look for different kinds of financial structures that can operate alongside the gallery system. Like selling shirts? No, but <laughs> I made prints. I have. I did. They're yeah, at make, the front counter. No, no. I make prints. Yeah. So oh. I've made prints. I do editions. <laughs> I um, am in the process of trying to tour a play. I have an umbrella organization that I work under now. Technically, the play is a nonprofit. Right. You can. I don't have to start my own nonprofit. I'm like you. You know, the thing can can operate. I can donate my own money to my own play right up to a certain amount and other people can too it's a way in which i don't have to put the burden on the gallery to support it because the gallery can't sell the play right but i can and you're fiscally sponsored so and I'm fiscally all sponsored. of that money can come through there that's right and i don't have yeah. to do any of the bookkeeping they do all the management mm-hmm. of it all and, and now everyone can see hamilton 2 electric boogaloo hamilton Yay. 2 electric boogaloo that's what i'm working <laughs> on right now but, yeah, but just to go back to your original question, which was... Well, I was interested in crossover between doing what you want and figuring out structures that support that work. So yeah. sometimes it's the gallery, sometimes it's somebody donating, sometimes it's earned income, sometimes it's yours. It seems like a, a kind of smart, holistic approach to be able to do the things that you want to do as opposed to buying into one thing. But there's a, it's, it's, there's a bigger question, which is, why do we make art in the first place? Right. Which, you know, I sort of racked my head around it and I essentially came to one conclusion is that so we make art so that we can make it again. Essentially, that's the only conclusion I could come to, because, you know, all the shit that you go through to make it is rewarding, but it can be extremely painful. And there's a lot of joy that, that comes out of that. 
that pain, but it's like the athlete whom's like, you know, I want to, you know, I want to play on a professional team, you know, they're mm -hmm. out there burnt muscles and acids burning in their muscles. We go through that same thing. But I think that if art wants to just be made again and again, then you have to think about how you're going to create an opportunity to do that. Because, you know, when I first met Charles and Eugenia Butler and a number of artists that were my mentors and I was an undergrad, they were on the other side of their fame. They were on the they were on that side of I had my moment, I'm still making work, but right. people don't appreciate what I'm what I'm doing in the same way that they did. It gave me some profound insight into how our culture values artists and at what point in their lives they attribute value. Charles was the one who said, Look, Edgar, you know, the art world and the success that you have in it is entirely arbitrary and it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of your work. These windows align and sometimes they misalign. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me his story, but I was preparing myself mentally to not be that person. I wasn't going to let someone else determine my access to my own production. I was going to build the infrastructure that I need. Bubble gum and tape and whatever it takes, whatever it takes, you do it. But it did extend fundamentally from an idea of what it is that art needs, right. what is it that art wants. And then I try to build an infrastructure around that kind of core belief. All artists now need to think about those things. While you're teaching, you're talking to somebody and they have an assumption of what the way it's going to be. There's a lot of that out there. Rarely is it ever what somebody thinks it is. I mean, even you have experienced all kinds of different scenarios and yeah. managed to figure out how to negotiate that territory. That's the case for every single artist. And every single artist has a different work. They're operating with different people. They have a different support structure if they have one. And again, I think it's up to the artist to kind of think those things through. If you just bumble along and hope that something's going to happen, that's a really hard way to have a career. Well, I would say. And I think being smart about things that happen is also really useful. I mean, you got your chops on in a lot of different ways. So the idea of working within a nonprofit and working in a community and understanding that is completely different from who's buying your work or the, th the people that you deal with for a commission or a big show or something like that. They're very different. There's this, the smartness that artists can get by having multiple experiences and figuring out where their real work works as opposed to making something to get somewhere, I think is a very different trajectory. One of the, the stories that I grew up on was the you know, my, I'm named after my grandfather, and I, I talk about him a lot, but he was an artist, and he was, you know, a painter, but he only had, like, a fifth-grade education, you know, so he was uh, also a street sweeper for the city of L.A., mm -hmm. you know, with a push broom. And the, but, you know, one of the stories that I grew up on was my mother telling me that Burr Rabbit and Burr Bear, the, the story that the Song of the South that came from Disney, she would, you know, this, she would always tell us how they stole that story from my grandfather. So, she, you know, he wrote down a script, and he sent it to them. Ah. And there's no way in which I can prove that that's the case. But when I... That happens so often. Yeah, so, you know, like the old man in the Song of the South, you know, my mother is always like, that's your, that's your grandfather. Now... Can we believe that narrative, too, or is that a family special story? You can believe it as I'm well. ready. Yeah, <laughs> you can ready. believe it. I mean, it's not that <laughs> Disney is incapable of it, but it did help me to understand that, that artists are, can, are, are easily exploited and that, you know, there's massive institutions that depend upon on that exploitation. Yes, artists should know how things work, but they also should recognize that if they themselves aren't going to be taking the steering wheel and thinking about all of the, the mechanisms and infrastructures that it takes to produce and mm -hmm. to manage and distribute, you at least have to recognize that if you're not doing it, somebody is, and, and at least respect the people who do that. And I do think that for a person who's conceptually driven like me, when you learn how certain things work, it turns on a light bulb in your head and it, it kind of helps to put a piece in the puzzle why they work in certain ways, why certain people benefit more than others. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm black and, you know, when I was in, in South LA and I was meeting all these artists, like most of them had never had a show north of the 10 freeway. And then that's here I am. Art world. Yes, yes, so yes, yes, yes. There's yes. so many of them, and that's what I'm sort of interested in. But now, you know, you have artists that make millions of dollars a year selling their art that had come from all over the world, and you know, mm -hmm. and are showing south of the ten doing it. That are show <laughs> that that are now happy to be showing south of the ten, um, which are like the new hip spaces. Which yeah. I'd never believed that like gentrification would be happening in my old neighborhood because like I grew up like not too far from where they shot Boys in the Hood. So yeah, like we moved out of LA in '84 because of 
stuff like Boys Because it hood. was real. Because it was real. Yeah. So now, like, seeing people move back there, I'm like, what the fuck? The thing <laughs> is, my sister moved back there. That's the thing that tripped wow. me out. Like, she bought a house that was, like, crazy expensive. Like, you know, 10 minutes where we grew up. And I was like, isn't this a place we try to escape from? And, mm-hmm. like, and now you're moving back there again. And she's got, like, white neighbors and stuff. I'm like, this is You're like, is this is so weird. so strange. <laughs> The thing is, is that, you know, a lot of artists are living in, in those communities because we go the places where we can afford Absolutely. to live. And then we turn it cool and then other people want to live there. So we get pushed out. Yeah, most of the, mostly the artists don't turn it cool. It's That's been the cool. Thing. It, no, it's the, it's the people who come after the artists that make it awful. It's the developers. It's the people who actually rip off a neighborhood. It's, it's just rarely the artist that has the money to make it cool. It's the people who yeah. come in and abuse that situation. And that's why artists get a bad name. It's rarely them. They don't have shit. They're just looking yeah, really. for a place to live. Right? And it's the place that you can afford. So all the gentrification issues, it's really fascinating because they're blaming it on artists, but it's not the artists because they have nothing. We can't help it. We're funky. Right? It's a real interesting uh, conversation that I think is um, really glossed over. Yeah. One of the realizations that I came to with doing my new financial architectures um, research was, um, was that if artists or creative people whom are renovating these spaces are able to quantify and then extract the value that they invested, if someone decides to displace them, then that's actually like real money that they can use to then invest right. somewhere else. Tangible data, yeah. yeah. But the the way in which our economic system and our laws are set up is that the owner is the one with all of the rights and they take all of the value. One of the things that I would like to advocate for through this research when we get to that stage is how people who make those investments of sweat equity, their own money, dollars, and investment and transforming, the relationships around that space that they can take some of that out of the sale you know they should right. be benefiting from it as well i wouldn't have any problem with getting displaced if i knew i was taking 50 grand with me right hey, or no. twenty five thousand dollars with me as opposed to them taking it and you getting booted out so you have nothing even though you have plus you kept my deposit and you kept my deposit <laughs> So, you know, I mean, everybody knows that the thing that stabilizes neighborhoods and keeps them um, healthy is is long-term occupancy. Right. You know, most of these communities where artists are moving in, if you gave them the opportunity to become long-time occupants, to be able to expand and extract the value that comes out of owning something, then you have healthier neighborhoods and at least the adjacencies around them are more, more likely to become stable as mm-hmm. well. But the displacement that happens from these large real estate investment investors that are coming from all over the world, buying blocks and blocks and blocks of, of properties at a time in auction or through bankruptcies, producing this, these, these incredibly expensive places for us to live. So then we have to go somewhere else. And then you keep moving and out further and over. further and the homeless people go with you and yep. then, you know, you sort of, and then you find yourself in these light industrial areas, which had to shut down because things were shipped overseas. So anyway, and the so water like makes that, us all sick. And, we yeah. put batteries in it. <laughs> Sup, Downey? Exactly. So, you know, the artists that are interested in being involved both within the social body as well as within the gallery can engage with those issues. They can mm-hmm. engage with those challenges. They can build an audience. They can build a support structure around these issues. These are actually opportunities for artists to be engaged in as opposed to feeling like, we're stuck in a place where we don't want to be. If there was an opportunity for you to take that and turn that into a mission, into a vision, mm-hmm. something that you can market and get support for, then there's an opportunity for you to have a really meaningful and engaged and, and deeply enriching and transformative career. And I think that the shrinking of the art galleries will make that those opportunities more apparent and more so. exciting. That's just me trying to take turn lemons into lemonade, right? What else do you do? That's, I mean, that's at some what point, we, that's, what, that's what, we what we have to do, and as, and as artists, we have to make a life for yourself. Yeah, I mean, you, you, know? you guys did that. I mean, you know, when Side Street Projects, yeah. I needed a space to work and build the sculpture. We were doing this big project at the Studio Museum. You guys were there for yeah. us. Like, we came, you supported us, you incubated us, you gave yeah. us a space. We did this great thing, you know, we took it to New York, and we were there yeah. in, your, your, in your adjacency for months and months and months. You yeah. Know? And you guys were super supportive, and you created an opportunity for us. That, that show was, was a big idea. deal. That show was a big deal. That was the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'd almost forgotten about that. Yeah, me too. I just remembered it right now. Yeah, I was like, and an example of that, that is, 
oh, you. <laughs> You're that example, actually. Because we were in an old build. We were in a yeah. parking lot of a building that had shut down. And yeah. you guys had taken it. Was then the city yeah. were storing documents in there. And you yeah, guys took it over. You moved your bus in. Yeah. And you turned it into something that, I mean, our sculpture was 35 feet long. Yeah. It was two stories tall. Like, yeah. where were we going to do that? <laughs> well, not here. In not this here. Giant little not studio. in this little, not in this studio. No. But there we could. Yeah. So, anyway, Edgar, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. Yes, I thank think you. your insights are amazing. I think that we, you should keep us posted on your financial organization and the things that come up. Can anybody go find this research anywhere? Or are you just putting it together? It's still a How can people help yeah. this project? So, they could write me. Um, they could write me and we can talk about it. So, it's. Um, Edgar at beyondentertainment.co. That's mm-hmm. um, just like it sounds, .co. And I used to have it on my website, my, my research, and then I took it down recently because I thought nobody cared. Um, <laughs> well, we care. Put it back up. But homie. now I'm talking about it again. Yeah. Um, so, But I did just recently wind up at USC, so I'm, I'm there full time now, which is great. Ooh. And um, part of the reason why I went there is because I, I realized that I couldn't do this research on my own and I needed some, yeah. some platform. I'm working to develop it there as well. But, you know, I need people from all over the country to help me with this. So reach out. I'm calling all of you out there listening to reach out and you're going to put it back on your website. I will put Perhaps. it back on my so website. We're shaming him into it currently. You yes. guys let me know when this is going to air, and then I'll, I'll put it back up again. Right before. Okay, let's edit yeah. really fast. Okay. Thanks to our guest, Edgar Arsenault. You can catch his research and artwork at his website, studioedgararsenault.com, or check out his episode of Art 21 in Season 8 at art21.org. Thanks also to Suzanne Fielmetter for letting us steal Edgar for this episode. We're keeping him. You can't have him back. Our music is brought to us by Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. You can check him out on Spotify, Pandora, and the internet at large. Thanks, Sean. And don't forget to check out Just Inc. and use promo code EDGAR to get free shipping on all the cool shit we make. That's it for this episode, amigos. Until next time, be nice to the interns and go make good art. We do have one more tiny request. We need you to say, hi, first name, last name, and I'm an artist. Do a couple of them. Okay. You want me to say hi? Yeah. Hi, this is Edgar Arsenault, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Edgar Arsenault, and I'm an artist. Hi, I'm Edgar Arsenault, and I'm an artist. (laughs) You're running out of All right, I like it. It's the NPR voice. I'm an artist. I'm Edgar Arsenault. We have been speaking to Edgar Arsenault, and he is an artist. Yes, 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 I am an artist.